Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Greetings fellow time travellers. As always, it's lovely to have you with me. We journey together through space and time, keeping each other company. This podcast series that Paul and I do together depends upon the, the support, the financial support from the Patreon.com site. So if you are a member, if you're in there, uh, part of the family, it's lovely to have you and a thousand thanks. If you'd like to become part of the family, go to Patreon.com, look for me by name, be part with a bit of cash. But it makes it makes everything that we do here, all the, all the content, all the competitions and question and answers and Monologues and all the rest of it all all come from that wellspring. That's enough of an advert. It's now time to strap into the time machine as we set off towards the next stop in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. Religious zealotry is fatally weakening the Mughal Empire in India. Rival Independent kingdoms are rising. Internecine struggles are breaking out between them. As the empire fractures, new hungry players move onto the board, keen to stake a claim and make their own fortunes. The French and the Dutch are on the prowl, but the East India Company flexes its muscles and sweeps them away so that the British Raj is born. Hi Neil, last week we travelled to Devon in England and watched one of the sparks of the Industrial Revolution catch fire and transform the world. Where are we this week? Hello Paul, yes well we're switching from invention and innovation in Britain to power politics in the Indian subcontinent. As the Industrial Revolution transforms Britain at home, its trading and military might is making great marks elsewhere in the world. And this week, we're outside the city of Murshidabad in Bengal as Lieutenant Colonel Robert Clive lines up his troops ready to fight a battle that will transform the Indian subcontinent. Well, the moment this week in the story of the, of the love letter to the world is a battle that changed the world. Those battles come along now and again. Uh, it was actually, in terms of battles of the of the period, it was relatively bloodless, you would say. We're also dealing with a legendary character from uh, British history, Indian history, Clive of India, Robert Clive of India. But we'll get to the we'll get to the specifics. A little bit of little bit of background on it. Oh, I suppose the other thing that I should say, really, before it just slips my mind, the sequence of events 
as they unfold, they feel very modern. Because you're talking about regime change. You know, that that we hear all the time, that we're constantly hearing that America, that the game that, that America and the West have been playing for decades, a century. It, it, when, you, when you hear this story play, it'll ring bells. And the bells that are ringing are the fact that it's such... You can say, ah, oh, yeah, they do that. They're still doing that. It's one of those stories. The 1600s are giving way to the 1700s. Uh, and that means that in the story of the world, there's a lot of complexity. You know, for, for the longest time in the, in the love letter to the world... It was all about the old world, Mesopotamia, Persia, Greece, so on and so on, Egypt. By now, though, in the 1600s, 1700s, there are so many threads. Europe's in the game, particularly, and that has just added to the, to the twists and turns of the story. We've previously encountered the Mughal Empire in India. The Mughal Empire was... It, 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 it tracks all the way back to Persia. You've got a, a Muslim, an, an, an Islamic seedbed f- for all of this. And you've got various lines that, that come out of, of there. The Mughal Empire is, is founded basically by people who, who descend from Timur, Timur the Lame, and, and, and Genghis Khan. By the time it ends up in moving in on the Indian subcontinent and having, having its influence there, uh, well, it's either called Mughal Empire because Mughal is a corruption of and an echo of the word Mongol, as in the, their blood supply comes originally from people that, that were characterised as being of the Mongol horde that came out of the Asian steppe. Uh, I think, I think uh, the, the Mughals, if they called themselves anything, they didn't call themselves that. I think it was more likely that at the time, while they were in their pomp, if they described themselves as anything, it was the empire of Hindustan, actually. That word would have been more familiar there. I don't think they would have called themselves Mughals, but it's come down to us as that. We look back on the time of the, the Mughal Empire. So the Mughal Empire lasted for a couple of hundred years. Uh, there's fantastic characters, Babur, the tiger. There's various great figures. Finally, though, you've got Aurangzeb, who is the king of the hill of the Mughal Empire, he takes the whole thing to its widest geographical expanse. So it's it's pretty much running from east to west across the wide bit of the triangle that is India, right across the top there, down as far as the Deccan Plateau, which is where the landscape of the Indian subcontinent really changes markedly into uplands and jungle. Aurangzeb was the youngest son of Shah Jahan. That's a name that a lot of people will know from the Taj Mahal. He built the Taj Mahal. Shah Jahan took the the Mughal Empire to the peak of its kind of architectural grandeur with, and that would be typified by the Taj Mahal. But uh, Aurangzeb, who's his youngest son, knocked him off the throne and replaced him. Once Aurangzeb was gone, now he dies in 1707, 1707, for people who are interested in history, will resonate in our part of the world as being the year when the Union of Parliaments of uh, England and Scotland uh, came into being, which is significant because from 1707 onwards, you've got Britain. 
the crowns were already united at that point. One person was sitting on the thrones of both England and Scotland. But with the Union of Parliaments, you've got Britain. So Britain, if you're picturing the world as a big chessboard, from this point on, uh, Britain is a piece on the board. And that's obviously significant. So, But over in the subcontinent, Aurangzeb dies, 1707. And in the aftermath of him, in the absence of him, the empire starts to fall apart. Its great heyday has come and gone. And for all sorts of complicated reasons that we don't really need to get into at the moment. It's had 200 years, it's had a pretty good run. starts to come apart. In any event, some of the activity has significantly annoyed and brought together as an entity the Maharatas. Now they are, they are Hindu. They have a, their faith is, is Hindu, which is in great opposition to Islam. So the, the Maharatas have established themselves on the Deccan Plateau and further afield besides. Their presence tips power away from the, the, the Mughal Empire. The presence, though, it's important to remember that the, the presence of the Mughals, it's, it lingers like the smile on, on the face of the Cheshire cat. <laughs> they're still there. Uh, but they're there in spirit, but the strength of the body is gone. But they, they continue to be visible and to be noticeable. But in reality, if poked, their real ability to affect significant change in the Indian subcontinent has gone. They're, another analogy you might make is that it's like a, a sandcastle on the beach that has dried out and the wind is blowing it and it's lost definition. And you just kind of know that the tide's going to come in on it and it's going to fall apart. It means that in the Indian subcontinent, as the 1700s come on, you've got a, a, a patchwork of Islam and Hinduism and Sikhism as well is also in the mix. With the Mughals no longer what they had once been, the Persians, from whom the Mughal Empire came in the first place, the Persians or part of the Mughal Empire came out of, the, of, of Persia. But the, Persia comes back in, in, a, in a new form and starts to lay claim on territory from the north. But here's where, the, uh, the, when I say it's a, uh, you know, why it's a moment, why it's a moment that matters in the story of the world, you could look at those entities, the Mughal Empire, even the Persians, as like dinosaurs, it's, it's, you know, it's like a, a scene from Jurassic Park. Big ancient creatures are still fighting one another for dominance. And they're fighting over the past. And they don't know it. And out of sight, down around their ankles, are the mammals. Small at the moment, but very significant. It's, it's, a, it's a parallel story. We all know what happens as the dinosaurs lose their grip and the mammals rise, small and insignificant at first, but there's a lot of them, and they're, and they're very effective at exploiting the niches in the ecosystem in which they find themselves. And the mammals in question, small and insignificant to begin with, are Britain, France, and the Netherlands, the Dutch. They're all there. Uh, Britain, by this point, has an East India Company, that entity which was you signed off late in the day for uh, Queen Elizabeth I. But France and the Netherlands have similar. They've got corporate trading entities exploring the Indian Ocean and the Indian subcontinent. So they're on the scene. 
The British established themselves, first of all, in Calcutta, in the River Valley, the basin of the Ganges. And to begin with, they're all small, but Britain is actually in the shadow of the Dutch. They're more significant in the early stages. What's critical, what's crucial, is that all of the Europeans have something like the same approach, which is to say they're only interested in trade. They're only about money, business. They don't care about religion. You don't care whether it's Muslim or Hindu or whatever else. They just want in. And they're, they're quite prepared. Aye, aye, whatever, go and worship what you like. It's not of any interest to us. Just let's, let's get things on a business footing. The French, their tactic is to ally with the Mughals. They figure that collectively they will have the upper hand. But we know, history tells us, that they were flogging a dead horse. And because the French allied themselves in that way, as the one dieth, so dieth the other. You know, the, the continued collapse of anything Mughal brought down the French effort at the same time. Their fates were combined at that point. So as I say, you've got the 17th century coming to an end and ticking over into the 18th century. As I've already mentioned, it wasn't just about India and the old world. It's an increasingly complicated tapestry of threads, of Byzantine complexity. The history of the world is now very much a world story because some of this that matters actually plays out in North America. Because by this point... France, Britain certainly have made inroads on the North American continent as well. Britain is pushing into territory that the French considers theirs. The machinations at play mean that uh, Britain and France strike deals with, get into alliance with various of the Native American tribes. They invite different tribes to join them. They set the tribes at one another's throats in the furthering of their, of their own objectives. In 1756, though, you've got the outbreak of the Seven Years' War, which is a... It's a well, it's a pan-European and international conflict. Because conflict is now... It's becoming World War-ish in potential because of the, how far all the threads have gone. So you've got the Seven Years' War going on from 1756, which plays out on the European theatre and also in North America. There's, there's fighting goes on there. Who was that between? Uh, it, Britain and France, it's in, in large part. Uh, everything's all... It's, it's, you know, Britain and France are, are at each other's throats for century after century, really. There's all sorts of alliances forming, though. You ask a pertinent question. Who are the players with skin in the game? There's the British, there's the Prussians, uh, there's the French, there's the Austrians, there's the Spanish. And they're all fighting each other, forming alliances. And there was more of the same going on in the subcontinent. Echoes of the same trouble. And on the subcontinent, in particular by this point, you've got France and Britain jockeying for position. And as I, as I say, the, the French, they hitched their wagon to the Mughal Empire in the form of the Nawabs. There's a word that you may know. The Nawabs were the nobility, the aristos of the Mughal Empire. And together, this kind of union of the French with the Mughal aristocracy, they challenged the British presence in Bengal. 
just in the hopes of making the, the territorial gain that would make all the difference. The British approach in, increasingly, I would say, it, it's a bit reminiscent of how the Romans operated in the old world, which is to say they weren't interested in religion and they weren't interested in an overarching ideology, really. They just wanted access to folks' stuff. The Romans just wanted stuff. It's like a shark that has to keep swimming forward in order to not drown. They just wanted access to Indian wealth in that instance. Very much that was their approach. So it, uh, it, it's about money. It's all about money. That's what I mean. That's when it, you start to think, isn't it always? It's, it's, it's always the same. You just, get, you just get a country that identifies a source of wealth for wh- whatever it is, gold, spices, oil, diamonds, whatever it is, and they go in and they try and help themselves to it. Things come to a head in 1756, the same year as the outbreak of the Seven Years' War. The Nawab of Bengal, the Mughal top dog in Bengal, he's called Siraj ud Dwala. he takes Calcutta, which is British. He takes the British fort at Fort William in Calcutta. That's a bloody nose. You know, that's fight and talk. Prisoners are taken, include not many. Uh, so there's British soldiers, and they are banged up with women and children. And they're herded into a small space, a small storage space. And this is the black hole of Calcutta that everyone's heard of. And they're herded in just to put them out of the way. And this happens overnight on the 20th of June, 1756. And in the morning, when the doors are opened, most people inside are dead. Of 60 or 70 people that went in, you know, 40 or 50 of them have died of, of suffocation and dehydration and the intense heat. So it's a, it's a scandal. Who knows, the Nawab, whether there was any intent, it's very hard to pin down. He may not even have known it happened until until it happened. It may not have been something that he knew about or sanctioned. Nonetheless, British people, including civilians, have died. And this, as so often happens, this is another of these modern reminding echoes. The British East India Company use it. They use it as an excuse to do what happens next. The East India Company has its own private army essentially a mercenary force. It employs and pays for and uses its own fighting force to get what it wants. And within the ranks or within the body of the private army of the East India Company is an individual, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Clive. So he's an employee, he's effectively a merc, <laughs> and he's, he's prominent in the army, he's Lieutenant Colonel, and he, he leads a force to retake Calcutta, you know, in high dudgeon, you know, this terrible thing having happened, this black hole of Calcutta, you know, women have died in the, and they, they, they go in. And by the January of 1757, he's done it. He's retaken Calcutta. And it's five, six months later that we get a moment of real note. Outside, a few miles outside the city of Murshidabad, which is the Mughal capital of Bengal, so the the HQ of that Nawab, Clive of India, as he becomes known, brings the Nawab of Bengal to battle at a place called Plassey. And now that's an immortal name. So 
You've got the Nawab of Bengal, which is Siraj Uddwala. He comes and faces Clive of India on the battlefield. It's very asymmetrical. Clive of India has perhaps 3,000 fighting men. The Nawab has 50,000. But, you know, the imbalances are, are of all sorts of different kinds and the, and the tactics and the armaments of the British soldiers prove far superior. As previously mentioned, it's, it's, it's not much of a battle, really. You know, you don't end up with the, the huge heap of slain that so often goes along with these encounters. But it makes all the difference. Siraj Uddwala is captured in the aftermath and imprisoned. He dies, he's assassinated, all a bit murky, but he ends up dead while in captivity. And he's then replaced as Nawab of Bengal by a British puppet. It's regime change. It's so... Is it old? Is it new? Well, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. And this, this way of operating, you know, once you start looking back in history, you see the same patterns unfolding again and again and again. It's fair to say, though, that the, the, the overarching significance of Plassey was not appreciated at the time. It was a victory... And it made a difference, but the, the sheer scale of the difference was not actually appreciated. The victory was, was accomplished by the East India Company's soldiers, but in the aftermath, the British government sends out actual British army, a contingent, a relatively small contingent, to go out and sort of bolster and get involved with what has already been achieved. It's a moment like no other in the British history of India, because although it wasn't understood by anyone right at the moment that it happened it's the end of the Mughals they're finished it's, it's finally the line drawn under their time with the Mughals out of the picture the French are out of the picture the Dutch, they're already even before any of it the Dutch are spent as well and so Britain has India as the subcontinent to herself. And this means the arrival of the British Raj. Now, there can't be many people out there, at least of a certain age, who haven't heard of the British Raj. The British Raj is British rule in India, and it's there. It has, it has come into its moment. That spark has been ignited, and it will change everything. What does Raj mean, rule? Oh, uh, well, it's... <laughs> I'm glad you asked. It's one of those Indo-European rooted words. It's a sound that human beings have been making from, the, from very early on. Etymologically, it means to lead in a straight line. And it's from Raj that you get, like, well, Reg in Regina, in a queen... Regulation, regulations, regulus, ruler, a rule, it all, all those words, a rule, a straight line, even Gaelic, Scots Gaelic has re, R-I-G-H, for king, all of those words all over the world, they all have roots and lines that come all the way back and raj, so the British raj is just rule, British rule in India. And would you say that 
that was the that was what was cementing the British Empire, and that's what the British Empire was one of. You can't over you really can't overstate it. Yes, and the wealth the wealth and influence that was facilitated for the British Empire was was hugely, very significantly founded upon, based upon, built upon what happened in the Indian subcontinent. Un, unimaginable wealth was laid open to the British in that part of the world. I mean, obviously, you, you know, the British Empire is it's, it's also in Africa. Uh, but I think when everyone thinks about the British Empire, well, if anyone does think about the British Empire, you tend to think about the colonials in India. I think that, you know, a passage to India, you know, that Merchant Ivory movie, when you say the words British Empire... The, I think the, the the image that that's conjured into people's minds of somewhere hot and sultry and you know you know people kind of inappropriately dressed you know wearing suits and stiff collars surrounded by all this you know tropical heat they're thinking about India you know the the British Empire and the British Raj and India and you know it's what made Victoria Empress it, it's all bound up in that. Indian elephant's ear shape that is the Indian subcontinent. Tall, voluptuous, long brown hair and dark eyes, Europe's last witch is led in chains through a packed square in the little town of Glarus in Switzerland. As science, reason and the Enlightenment are flourishing elsewhere, Across the rest of Europe, a swordsman swings his blade and cuts off her head. A powerful man's discarded mistress is executed and can speak no more. The ultimate cancelling. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, Sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out my new shop full of merchandise, T-shirts, mugs, hoodies and the rest. Uh, you'll find the details down below. Uh, my Instagram account with great daily updates is called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel and it features new films every week. Uh, to help build this podcast series, please tell your friends, get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Squared Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. <laughs>